the Bantams here? They're not, are they? Oh, I was in a meeting um, this week, and Joe Bunton said he loves it when a preach starts with a story. So I put a story in to start just for him, and he's not here. Well, I hope you all enjoy, enjoy the story. Before I begin, let's pray. It's been beautiful just hearing God through the worship. And I think there's so much in the words that were brought and in the words that we were singing, which is going to overlap with what is in the preach. And God is speaking to us. So, Father God, we need you. We love you and we want you and we want more of you in our lives. We just confess this morning as we come before you, Lord, ready to hear your word, submit to your word. We need more of you, more than anything else in the world. So would you open our hearts, give us ears to hear. Lord, would you help me to speak your words in your power? And would you move amongst us, move in our hearts and minds and lives, and do us good in Jesus' name for your glory this morning. Amen. All right. Who's climbed a mountain? Oh, quite a few of us. Nice. Well done. Um, Any dramas on the way up? Or was it fairly smooth? We ran out of water. That's not not ideal. (laughs) (laughs) Several years ago, Beth and I climbed (laughs) Snowdon. And it was February half-term. We were on holiday in Wales and thought, well, we're here, might as well. And um, the weather was awful. And as we got about three quarters of the way up, I mean, the wind was so strong that people were literally crawling (laughs) along the ground so that they wouldn't be blown over and blown off the edge of the mountain. Uh, It was was pretty hairy. And we, we got up to this part where some people were saying, you couldn't see, we were in the clouds, it was, I had my glasses on, glasses all fogged up, I just could not see a thing, and some people coming back the other way were saying, oh, just be careful, there's a sheer drop just around the corner, but, you know, there's no visibility at all, so, take care. (laughs) Oh, thanks, (laughs) thanks for that word of advice. I am petrified of heights, so there I am, being told there's a sheer drop round the corner, my legs are like jelly. I cannot see, and I'm frightened. And Beth says, just put your hands, just go behind me, put your hands on my shoulders, and just keep in step with me, and we'll just walk straight along the ledge, and we'll do it. We'll get, we'll, get, we'll get through it. And so I did, and we did. <laughs> there are moments in life where all we can do is trust. And, and that, for me, was one of them. Just had to trust Beth. <laughs> We're not going to fall off the edge of this mountain. And it was, yeah, it was, it was all good. And what we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 4. 
and the faith of Abraham, how he trusted God and what that means for us today. The key verse, feel free to turn to Romans chapter 4, but the, the key verse, the key phrase that is central to chapter 4 and therefore central to what I'm going to say this morning is that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to understand what that means, we do just need to quickly look back at this theme, because righteousness is a theme. You may have spotted it as we've gone through Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 so far. And it's really important for us to understand what the Bible means, what this is talking about when it uses that phrase, righteousness. See, in Scripture, we see two different kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is talking about his character, his nature, which leads him to do the right thing. Always. God always does what is right. He can do no other because of his very nature. But this has a really special application. That's a, bit, a little bit of an abstract idea, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's got a nature. It means he always does what is, is right. But this gets grounded in the Bible. This gets grounded throughout the Old Testament in a very specific way. God doesn't just do what's right. He does what is right by his people. If you read the Old Testament, you will see God makes so many promises to his people. Promises them his presence. He promises them land. He promises he will make them a great nation and bless them and make them to be a blessing to the whole world. He promises that he's going to take away sin and remember it no more. So many promises. And God's righteousness, part, a big part of what that actually means in practice, is that God is faithful to his people because he does what is right by them, according to the promises he has made. Nowhere do we see this more gloriously fulfilled than in the second kind of righteousness that we've seen in Romans so far. So we've had the righteousness of God, but wonderfully, there's also a righteousness that comes from God as a gift to us. And that's what we need to really uncover today. That's what Abraham received. That's what was credited to Abraham when he believed God. This is a different kind of righteousness because 
Newsflash, we don't do everything right all the time. We don't have a nature like God that leads us to always do right. We do lots of things wrong, drawn to do things that are wrong. But the good news, the best news, is that though that is the case, Jesus died to pay the penalty for all those things you've ever done wrong and ever will do wrong. And instead, you're offered forgiveness from him. And you can receive that when you trust the gift of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. (coughs) Because of that, God makes us righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean that we get righteousness from God? It means we're innocent before him. In his sight, we're innocent and in a right relationship with him. Okay? We do, we've done things wrong, but we're forgiven and he declares us righteous, innocent before him. The Bible calls that justification. You know, you might have heard that explained as justification. It means just as if I'd never sinned. It's God declaring you innocent. Yes, you're not, but that's been dealt with by Jesus. And so now you are innocent in God's sight. And so we've seen it in in Romans 1, the theme of uh, God's righteousness coming by faith. We saw it in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by what? It's by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. In Romans 2 and 3, we saw a different possibility explored and rejected. It said in Romans chapter 2, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. But there's a problem, because Romans 3 then goes on to say, there is no one righteous, not even one. Nobody is capable of making themselves right with God. Nobody is capable of making themselves righteous. We can't even keep the most basic of God's laws. You know, like the simple ones, like don't lie. You ever lied to make yourself look a bit better than you are? Have you ever lied to try and avoid a bit of blame in a situation? Yeah, Honour your parents. Have you done that perfectly all your lives? They can be hard to honour. Not misusing God's name, not desiring someone else's wife, not desiring someone else's husband or house or their possessions. Yeah, even these relatively simple ones, you know, it's impossible. But then, after it says no one's righteous, it immediately then in verse 11 goes on to connect that 
no one being righteous, with this assertion, there is no one who seeks God. And that, that reminded me of, of a quote from, from Tim Keller. Steve, this is for you. <laughs> Sorry, in that, in that meeting this week, uh, Steve was saying how much he loves Tim Keller. I've got the story for Joe, and I've got Tim Keller quotes for you. <laughs> so, yeah, so Tim Keller says this in his book called King's Cross, which I recommend. It's really good. He says, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world he has made. Sin is ignoring God in the world he has made. It is rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It is saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And all of us have patterns, habits, areas of our life where we ignore God so that we can do things our way instead. And yet, at the end of Romans chapter 3, as Paul was helpfully preaching on last week, the good news comes crashing back in. No, we can't make ourselves righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't become... Uh, you know, we can't attain a state of righteousness ourselves, but righteousness can be received as a free gift of grace from God based on his loving kindness to us. Nothing more, nothing less. And that is beautiful. And that is what Abraham received So getting into the meat of Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? The matters we've just been speaking about. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so in chapter 4, what we've got going on is Paul giving us an example of what he's been talking about at the end of chapter 3. And the example he chooses is Abraham. Why does he choose Abraham? To the Jews that he was speaking to, Abraham was the father of their nation, father of their faith, and they revered him for his obedience to God. If you read the stories of Abraham in the Old Testament, you see how God tested him and he obeyed uh, God. And so the Jews had a tendency to see Abraham right up on a pedestal, you know, Um, and Paul's point here is that even the great Abraham wasn't declared righteous by what he did. He was declared righteous by who he trusted. That is key. 
And so then we go on to verse 4. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. He's hammering home the point again. Righteousness is a gift. You cannot make yourself perfect through trying hard. It's not possible. It's not in your nature. Righteousness does not come through work. It can only be received as a free, generous gift. Why does this book of Romans labor this point over and over and over again? Why do you think? Paul makes the point repeatedly because he knows that people always tend towards trying to justify themselves through what they do. Do you know what? I've been a Christian for about 20, nearly 25 years now. I still fall into it. It's this mentality. It's the mentality that says, if I perform well, then I make myself worthy. If I perform well, then I make myself acceptable. If I perform well, I make myself more important. If I perform well, then on some level, I justify my existence. It reminds me of when I was 10 years old, and I went to school one day, and one of my friends had, who, I was a massive Man United fan, and he was also a massive Man United fan, and this was 1994, and <clears throat> the king back then was Eric Cantona. So <laughs> he was a famous star forward for Manchester United who revolutionized the club when he came in. And <clears throat> I adored him. And my friend had drawn by hand a portrait of Eric Cantona, and it was stunning. It was lifelike. I looked at this and thought, my goodness, you are gifted. How have you drawn that? I could never draw like that. And I was so enamored with it that he said, do you want it? You can borrow it if you want. You can take it home for two days. I was like, ooh, all right, I think I will. And so I took this drawing of, of Eric Cantona home with me, and my dad saw it, and he went, wow, that's amazing. Did you draw that? And I had this moment where I thought, do you really think I could draw that? But I really, really, really wanted to impress my dad and feel better about myself and feel more esteemed in his sight. And so 
I lied. And I said, yeah, I drew it. I drew it at school this morning. And his face lit up. He beamed at me. He said, that's amazing. And inwardly, I grew. And I thought, oh, Dad's impressed with me. This feels amazing. And then the very next moment, I thought, oh, this isn't real. And the next day, I had to admit to Dad, because he, he asked me, he's like, oh, you draw some more. <laughs> and I had to come clean. I had to come clean, and he was so disappointed with me. And I got in so much trouble for lying. I felt really ashamed. <laughs> But why did I do it? I felt like if I performed, I was more acceptable. And we can all fall into that, whether it's in our workplace, yeah, whether it's serving at church. There's all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of things we can do. I mean, I sometimes do an extra bit of housework in the hope that Beth will notice <laughs> But yeah, there's all sorts that we do, and it's this mentality. If I perform, I'm accepted. But is that how it works with God? Of course, you know the answer in your head. No, that's not how it works with God. The good news is you are already accepted. You are already loved. Jesus died for you when you were still ungodly. The verse, the last verse that I read is that God justifies the ungodly. Jesus died for you when you were still ungodly. He was ready to accept you before you'd even thought about accepting him. He loved you first. And all that's left for you to do is to believe and to trust in Jesus. Let's take a moment to ask the question, what does it look like to trust? If I can move us forwards to verse 18. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham knew that for God to fulfill his promises, he would have to take what was as good as dead and bring life from it. Maybe that sounds familiar. Jesus was dead. 
He was buried in a tomb. And he was brought back to life again for our salvation. Abraham did not ignore the facts. It says here really clearly that he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was dead. But he did not focus on the fact of the situation. What he focused on was the promise and the power of God. And friends, that's what we need to do too. Abraham's faith was not a blind whimsy. It was based on the reality that the creator God of the universe had spoken to him and made him promises. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that did not exist. He trusted that that creator was able to bring new Life And Isaac was born from Sarah's dead womb. And that same creator God of the universe is speaking to you this morning. It goes on in verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not just for him, not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so that we could be declared righteous, innocent before God, accepted and welcomed into his family. Will you trust that this morning? We're nearly there. There's a very strong possibility that you're not only trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, that you're not only persuaded by God's promise and God's power. I've got another Tim, Tim Keller quote. John in the band, if you want to come back up, we'll bring this into land. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. Whether it is to succeed in our chosen field, or to have a certain relationship, or regain our health, we're saying, if I have that... If I get my deepest wish, then everything will be okay. You're looking to that thing, you're looking to that deepest wish to save you from emptiness, from disillusionment, from being unfulfilled. You've made that deepest wish into your saviour. You never use that term, of course, but that is what is happening. And if you never quite get your wish, you're angry, unhappy, empty. But if you do get it, you ultimately feel more empty, more unhappy, because you got your deepest wish, and you found it wasn't enough. 
What is your deepest wish? What is the one thing that if you had it, you think that will make everything okay? Is it Jesus? I'm in a situation at the moment where, for me, how I would answer that question, on my less good days, it would be around my career. I've never had a job where I felt like, yes, this is what I'm made for. I am fulfilled. I've always felt like, oh, man, if I could just find a job that sort of fitted me better, where I could use my gifts but also something I'm really interested in, then I'll feel fulfilled. If I got that, then I'd be happy. Yeah, what is it for you? So we need to face the facts of our situations like Abraham did, but not focus on those facts. We need to focus on the promise and the power of God. Jesus has made a way for us to be declared righteous. We can, be, we can draw near to God, innocent in his sight, and in him we find everything else we need. It says, seek first God and his kingdom, and everything else will be added to you. Every needful thing. If you've got a deepest wish for a Ferrari, it might not be that. All right? But for every needful thing, it will be added. If you can, if you're able, if you'd like to, please stand. Do you need to put your trust in Jesus? Maybe for the first time this morning. Do you need to be declared righteous, declared innocent in God's sight? Receive forgiveness. Receive that welcome, that embrace, that acceptance in him? Do you need to renew your trust in God again? Jesus died and he rose again for you. Is there a situation you're facing and the only thing that's left to do is trust. Let's bring all these things before God now. I'm going to pray. I'd encourage you to pray. <coughs> Father God, thank you so much that we get to be declared righteous just by trusting in the free gift of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Thank you that you accept us, Lord, that you died for us when we're ungodly to make us yours, to make us whole, to make us fulfilled in you. Thank you that we find everything we need in you. 
Lord, the situations that we face, which are hard, bordering impossible, where it seems like there's just death, where there's just nothing, and we need there to be life. Like Abraham did, we just give these situations to you now. And we trust your promise. And we trust your power. Jesus, thank you that all the promises of God are yes and amen in you. And maybe you just need to speak to your soul like King David did from Psalm 62. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. Trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. And you're going to have the opportunity to pour out your hearts to him now as we respond in worship and as we take communion. Let communion be an opportunity to express your trust, receiving the free gift of the bread and the juice as Jesus' broken body and his blood shed for you to make you whole.